Hey guys, this is Pete. Before we start the show, I just wanted to give a quick shameless plug for my debut novel entitled Frankenstein, A Life Beyond. It's the first direct sequel to Mary Shelley's classic and follows Ernest Frankenstein, the sole survivor of the original book. Like mystery, adventure, romance, horror, then this is the ebook for you. Check it out today on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and my website, EnceladusLiterary.com. That's E-N-C-E-L-A-D-U-S-Literary.com. Thanks. Now on with the show. Welcome to Hindsight is 2020, a show where we look at anything in this world and arrogantly say how we'd fix it. And I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. These two idiots. <laughs> we give our thoughts on movies and TV shows that should or should not have been. You got a plan? Not really. kind of thought we'd just wing it. You know, run in, guns blazing, make it up as we go. With your host, Pete. Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. And Greg. Powell, has it occurred to you he could be one of the terrorists pulling your chain? Or some nutcase in there? And we slowly and mercilessly beat our subject to death. Dad, just try, try not to make an even bigger mess of things. Now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. I promise I'll never even think about going up in a tall building again. Shut up! And hello and welcome to another episode of Hindsight is 2020, the show where we do look at things that have been created, things that haven't been created, and say, should they? Should they be rebooted? Should they be redone? And today we're talking about Die Hard. And we are, in all honesty, re-recording ourselves right now as we had some technical issues as we did record this episode originally on the night that we actually saw Die Hard 5, otherwise known as A Good Day to Die Hard. And and not to spoil anything, but we took a list we took a bullet for you listeners. <laughs> uh, well, sure. <laughs> that's one way you want to look at it is that it was uh, it was kind of a pile of poop uh, dressed up as a as a movie. But that night you also saw live free or die hard prior to going to the theater and yes i fast forward yeah i i saw the mercifully shortened version of that film as well so but don't go out looking for a shortened director's cut no we're talking about watching the movie on fast on fast forward yes and uh to to be clear i am a fan i consider myself a fan of the die hard franchise even though i've now just ripped on the last two die hard (laughs) movies that have been mentioned but uh i have very fond memories of uh, Definitely number one and number three. Uh, I tend to put those a little bit above number two personally, but um, have always enjoyed uh, that era, at least, of the franchise. But yeah, these last couple of installments have left me a little cold. So let's, there's a little bit of a history lesson there. So when was the first time that you saw Die Hard and did it have the impact on you that it had on the rest of the culture? I did not see it in the theater. I don't remember exactly when I saw it. It had to have been a while after it came out because, quite honestly, I think the first time I saw it was on, like, the network television debut type of thing. So uh, nothing real special on my end. Uh, I'm sure it was heavily edited for language with all kinds of interesting (laughs) uh, edits to get around any of the cursing in the film and 
uh, whatnot. But no, I, it was one of those movies that was just even, you know, then uh, when I was much younger, I recognized it's just a very solid, enjoyable film, uh, both from a character standpoint, an action standpoint, and really looked forward to seeing the next ones. I don't think... Two, I don't know when I saw two. I, I might have actually seen three before I saw two, and that might have something to do with why I like three more than two. But, um, yeah, that, that was kind of the order that I tackled it in. Now, you, you go way back with this. Oh, absolutely. Well, I will claim to be the true, honest fanboy here. Die Hard, I'm in my mid-30s, and I saw Die Hard on video. I did not see it in the theater. But I will lay claim that that'll always hold an honorary number one spot on my favorite movies of all time list. And I put it there a long time ago, and it's still there. And it's an honorary number one because I've seen, honestly, movies that are better than that. But nothing impacted me quite the way the original Die Hard did when I saw it. I saw movies up until that point, but I never actually realized what movies were. And the special thing with Die Hard is not only was it an awesome kick-ass movie and I loved every minute of it and I just could not get enough of it, but the first time I saw it, I immediately saw a making of Die Hard. And that was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that, any behind-the-scenes stuff. So that was my first intro into the idea of, wait, people made this? You know, you create somebody created this? This is one the shot in front of a live studio audience or a true story? So... It, it holds that that place in my heart as being, you know, that number one forever. And then Die Hard 2, my brother and I went and saw that opening weekend, summer of 1990. And I, I was still young enough to be just taken along for the ride because, well, this was the first time I'd seen those characters that I'd seen 50 times prior to uh, on VHS. So it was good to be back, but there was a little something off. And then Die Hard 3, I will never forget, was the day, the final day of my senior year of high school. And me and 20 some other guys went to a movie, like the first showing on a Friday afternoon of that, of Die Hard with a Vengeance and saw that and, and loved it. And then it just kind of faded out as I took film classes in college and moved on to other things. But it still always held that honorary spot. And then... There was always talk about doing more, and then along came the fourth one. But by the time the fourth one came along, it almost seemed like an afterthought. Like so much time had passed that it because three three came out in ninety five, and then four came out two thousand nine, two thousand seven, seven. Okay, but it was enough time to, that had passed, and enough things that had gone on that it just was no longer relevant anymore. There was no way to really bring it back up. It was almost so much a product of its time, yet it was a little bit timeless. Um, so it just and the fourth one, you know, we bring it back full circle here to you watching that the night we saw the fifth one here a couple months ago or a couple weeks ago. Is I saw the fourth one in the movie theater and I was fairly disappointed with it. And my main memory, looking back on it, was. It was awful. (laughs) But then about a week or so before we were going to go see this latest installment, I thought, I'm going to, I haven't seen it in forever. I'm going to sit and watch the whole thing. And I was actually pleasantly surprised. And I realized that the reason my criticism of it came so wholeheartedly is that the last 10 to 15 minutes of the fourth Die Hard movie are so off the rails and so awful. Just... (laughs) taking it to these cartoony levels that you leave that that's the the taste you leave the theater with and it kind of negates the previous two hours of the movie in which it was okay for what it did and it was not that bad and and we're definitely going to be talking about the uh cartoonization if that's even a word of the john mcclain character uh through these movies but yeah, Die Hard, I mean, especially the original, that was a seminal film. That kind of reset uh, the whole idea of what an action movie should be. And for the better part of the next decade, 
whether it was a conscious effort or not, I think most people, when it came to action movies, were trying to recreate the magic of Die Hard. Yeah, and that's pretty much what I was getting at, is that it just is beyond its time, and it had spun off so many imitators that could you possibly go back to the original and have the same effect? Now, whether or not you could, that's, I guess, what we're doing here, (laughs) because the way they did four and five seems like the just wrong direction to go with, (laughs) with this idea. So, well, let's, let's start to define wrong direction. First of all, for those who aren't familiar with it, can we do a basic breakdown of the essential story for number four? Oh, number four. Okay. Let's do that. Since I think we're going to end up tackling both kind of peripherally anyways. All right, well, let's sum this up in 20 seconds or less in case someone who's actually listening to this has never even seen Die Hard, which why you'd click on something that says Die Hard and you haven't seen it. We forgive you. Yes. (laughs) So the basic story of the first one is John McClane's a New York detective. He's on the outs with his wife, goes to her Christmas party in Los Angeles and gets stranded in a building with a bunch of terrorists. And he's alone and he has to fight off the terrorists while trying to save his wife's life. And, and all the hostages the terrorists have taken. Yes, exactly. And then he manages to get out. And it was just such a groundbreaking film, Bruce Willis's first major performance. And then from there, it was sort of escalation. You had and this, this. Well, you've always got one, one quick thing. You've always got the twist in the Die Hard movies. There's always got to be some unexpected twist to what exactly it is that the villains are doing that really kind of refocuses and captures the audience again towards the end of the movie. It's pretty simple. Every villain in every diehard movie ends up wanting a lot of money. That's it. <laughs> They're just a bunch of robbers. That's all it ends up being. No matter how grandiose every single one of them wants to be, every single one of them wants to be sitting on a beach with money. That's five villains and that's five results. But the second second movie went to an airport where it was taken over. And then the third movie was in New York. So the fourth movie was an older John McClane has to take some computer hacker whiz kid to, uh, to, to Washington. He's just along for the ride, basically, as a cop who has to... Dr- be a secure ride down to Washington and then all of a sudden all the shit starts hitting the fan because cyber terrorists have taken over. Yeah. And they want to take over the whole country. And so John McClane gets roped into it. And then out of sheer happenstance, because we saw a a scene briefly early on with his daughter and how they were on the outs, she gets pulled in as a hostage and that's supposed to give us some sort of emotional connection as to what John is doing, but it doesn't really because every diehard movie has one thing in common. They all seem like there's another story, but let's put this John McClane character into that story and make it a diehard movie. So you have, the original movie, well, we're going to change the name to John McClane. And then the second movie was Terrorists Take Over an Airport. Let's make both, that a John McClane movie. And and both the first two were based on existing books. Correct. And then the third movie was based on an existing screenplay called Simon Says, where, you know, the terrorist takes over New York, and they, well, let's make that a Die Hard movie. And so the fourth movie is a cyber terrorist wants to take over the country. And I guess the executives of Fox and Bruce Willis decided, well, this is where we can shoehorn in John McClane and bring him back. And Hey, I'm back America. (laughs) (laughs) And it, it is of the first four, the one that shows the earnestness of trying to squeeze him into a story the most, because it's its own self-contained story. It could be anybody. It just so happens it's Bruce Willis playing the character named John McClane. So what are they going to do? Shoehorn a scene in at the beginning with his daughter. Shoehorn her in at the end as a hostage. But it, it doesn't make any logical connection. And by the end of the movie, he stops being the character he was in the first movie where 
some glass on a floor is enough to cause a 20 minute scene sequence in the movie of how much that destroys him because he's in bare feet to jumping off of a blown up semi onto a wing of an F-15 fighter <laughs> and sliding down a highway that's crumbling and getting up and walking away. Eh, just ignore the burning debris raining down on you, sir. You'll be fine. So that's where the ending part just doesn't work because for the most part, and there are some sequences that don't work, but for the most part, up until those last, I'd say, 15, 20 minutes of Die Hard 4, it's it's okay. It's certain it's showing its wear and tear, but it's it's okay. It's passable. But then it just completely jumps off the rails, and that's what brings us to the fifth movie. Which the fifth movie. Ooh. He's on vacation. <laughs> and again, we will talk about that. <laughs> and the basic plot to this one is. John McClane is yet again on the outs with his family, except for his daughter. But he's, but he's on vacation. Oh, he's always on vacation, as we'll learn. <laughs> and he finds out that his son, Jack, has landed in Russia and gotten into trouble, and he's going to be in court. And so John goes over there, supposedly on vacation, uh, to help him in some capacity and we find out that jack is in fact working for the cia and he's there to get out this pseudo russian political prisoner guy who we'll just call grover graybeard from here on out and uh, it just gets wackier from there until we finally end up at chernobyl of all places <laughs> See, you're right here. You can just stop right now. You don't even have to go any further because already you have a huge discrepancy in just trying to explain the story of the movie. Well, if you ask me to explain the character motivations in this story, it would be flat out impossible. So. <laughs> Because... I, I can get you I can get you to Russia and then it stops. Well, it's just because you get into it and you're already falling hook, line, and sinker for whatever it was that this director or writer thought you needed to hear when you say John's going on vacation when that's no. He the whole point was he was gonna go to rescue his son, who he thought was in trouble and ready to be put to death in Russia. And then all of a sudden throughout the movie, at least five times, he just drops this out of nowhere. But I can't be involved in all this. I'm on vacation. And no, you're not at all. That was not set up at all. You were told that at the beginning, you told whatever cop you were talking, he was talking to at the shooting range before he left when he was in New York, that he had talked to his ex-wife, Holly, and he had to go rescue his son in russia so it was pure and simple a mission not a vacation and and there's this extreme tonal disconnect between that scene where he is talking to the cop back in new york and once we get to russia because it's he runs into jack as jack is fleeing from this courtroom that's been blown up by people who are coming supposedly to kill grover graybeard and he just randomly runs into his father on the street and they just kind of bark back and forth at one another, basically, you know, not being real happy to see each other with John McClane going, Hey, you're in enough trouble. Don't, don't make it any worse. With and no then he proceeds with, with no, no explanation. explanation of why, why do you hate your dad so much? We don't know. We don't know. Just obviously he does, I guess. But from from that, what follows after that is like a 15 or 20 minute car chase sequence in which John McClane wrecks. I don't know how many vehicles, not not including just the ones he's in, but, you know, other ones on the road, which in and, and of, its, in and of itself, if you just said we just want to have a classroom uh, subject matter of how to shoot and execute a car chase scene, it would work just fine. It's 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 a fine, oh yeah it's a it's, it's a fine chase scene it's a fine, yeah. but with no emotion or anything attached to it whatsoever you have a fine a finely tuned edited and shot car chase scene that means nothing except that 
he he basically runs over a quarter of the population of Moscow and <laughs> and doesn't every time anything. <laughs> doesn't accomplish anything and every time he wrecks a vehicle he might pause for about 5 seconds and oh, my shoulder kind of hurts uh, and then he pops you know it's like right off the concrete <laughs> that he's been flattened into and jumps in another vehicle and just keeps going yeah and i it's don't amazing. think and we're not what we're here to do is to to redo <laughs> bringing John McClane back. So we don't need, basically the movie turns John McClane into this old fart, supposedly, who is suddenly a cartoon character because nothing seems to affect him. He can fall off of buildings. <laughs> he can wreck cars, is completely unaffected by it, never goes into shock from any of these things, can jump through plate glass window like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> can jump into a plate glass window while simultaneously flipping off uh, someone who's flying a helicopter at them, landing into an irradiated swimming pool <laughs> in Chernobyl and walk away <laughs> into the sunset with his children. And it doesn't... <laughs> It's horrible. <laughs> it's not good. It, it could have been done so much better, even with what we were given in part four and part five. You could still manage to make something out of what they started with, had you not gone to these ridiculous levels with the John McClane character. Well, and before we sat down to re-record this, I basically wrote down four. Uh, basic subjects that I wanted to make sure that we addressed in this. Uh, one is the sidekicks, the progression of the sidekicks through the movies that we have. Uh, the villains uh, turning him into a, how exactly did John McClane become a cartoon hero rather than an actual action hero? And yeah, just the, and we've already kind of tackled this one, just the bad logic that has crept into the storytelling. Well, the, the thing that I said before we started, there's one easy way to make a change, and that is how you handle how the character of John McClane deals with windows in a tall building. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you have to do is if you look at the original Die Hard, the scene where he jumps off the roof that's exploding and he's got the fire hose, it takes him kicking and kicking, and then swinging and shooting every bullet he has in his gun at a plate glass window of a skyscraper, and just barely getting through as it shatters. And in the fifth movie, you have him and his son just running headlong like a running back with their head down into the same type of window, and just <laughs> blasting right through like nothing's happening and falling 50 feet into an irradiated swimming pool. And in that in that first movie, it's visceral. You feel, you know, that this guy is hundreds of feet up in the air, that, you know, he is in real danger of falling to his death, uh, and you're genuinely worried about the guy. And then, yeah, by the time this fifth one rolls around, it's just like you've seen so many nonsensical things ha happen to him. It's just like, whoa, 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 through the glass. <laughs> hey, look, it's a plate glass window. I can run through it. <laughs> <laughs> and before we get into how we'd redo it, I, my theory of why we got what we got for parts four and five is mm -hmm. I seem to recall when I used to watch all of the miscellaneous material and Entertainment Tonight and Access Hollywood and all that kind of stuff, is around the time of Die Hard with a Vengeance in 95, I think Bruce Willis gave an interview and he was half joking, half not. It might have been on Letterman, where he stated something to the effect of, yeah, I'm going to keep doing these movies until I'm in a wheelchair, and we're just going to keep escalating until John McClane saves the moon or something. And I think someone at Fox or Bruce Willis himself took that joke way too seriously <laughs> because that seems like the only motivation for what they're doing is – Okay, we was in a building, then an airport, then a city, then the eastern seaboard of the United States. Now it's all of Russia. So he's, he's got to go to the moon now. Instead of stepping back and saying, well, if you base a story off the character, you might actually care what happens when you do all the crazy explosions and, and silliness and whatnot. And it started around the end of Die Hard with a Vengeance when you – 
started having some cartoony things happen in John McClane, but it was still semi-based basically, in reality. Basically grounded in reality. Stretches it a bit towards the last third of that movie, but most of the film, you're basically grounded in reality. Uh, I actually have a alternate explanation that we can blend in with yours, and that is the prevalence, the dollar signs in Hollywood's eyes to the global market. Well, yeah. And the fact that, okay, well, we don't have to tailor this to American audiences necessarily because we know that the foreign markets are very lucrative. If we just give them a, you know, brainless uh, action movie, well, you know, there's a fair amount of the populace of other countries who are just fine with just going along for the ride. It doesn't matter so much about the character. It's, hey, is this a satisfying little adventure that we're going on? True enough. So I guess our first task would be is a studio, is somebody coming to us and saying, okay, we want to reboot Die Hard into a series still with Bruce Willis and we're going to do it in 2006? Or are we coming with the sense that Live Free or Die Hard is already in existence and we're redoing part five? We could keep Live Free or Die Hard. Um, I don't think it would really matter that much one way or another because it's so disconnected in a lot of ways from what came previously. And we don't necessarily have to ground, ground ourselves into a whole lot of what happened in that movie. So I think we've kind of got freedom to take it or leave it. Okay. Well, I say we... we say that somebody comes and says okay well live free or die hard didn't do so well so let's we want to do a fifth one bruce willis wants to do a fifth one we have mary elizabeth winstead signed on to play his daughter and we have another child from the first movie that we can throw in there plus we can throw in there paulina the may the spanish-speaking maid and holly and that'll compensate for all the characters from the first movie yes the character of holly is conspicuously absent after number two uh she's she's mentioned she's mentioned uh kind of a couple of times in number three and it ends with a little phone call but we never see her number four she might as well not even exist on the planet well no number four they do two mentions okay They, they do the mention of his daughter at the beginning saying her last name is Gennaro and not McLean. Mm-hmm. And then they also do the bit where the cyber terrorist is looking into the background of John McLean and he pulls up the picture of Holly, which, <laughs> which the movie's in 2007 and he pulls up a picture of which basically <laughs> is like a, a promo shot of Bonnie Bedelia from 1988. Like, you did, like Holly hasn't gotten a new driver's license in 25 years. Oh, yeah, I forgot about the driver's license. You're right. <laughs> but, but that's the only mention. And then in the fifth one that we get, there's two mentions of her again. There's the beginning when he says that he talked to Holly and he's going to go to Russia. Well, has, has Jack changed his name to Gennaro too? No, I think his name was Jack McLean in the movie. Okay, okay. I couldn't remember. I think so. Yeah, I think so. But yeah, going back to to what we got, the last bit of on, on what we actually got for the fifth movie was there was the glaring omission at the end. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when they got, obviously they got Mary Elizabeth Winstead on set for probably a day and a half to shoot her two scenes. A scene in the car early on with her dad dropping him off at the airport and then the scene at her at the end when Jack and John arrive home and she's there at the airport. But why in God's name, they wouldn't even bother getting either pay Bonnie Bedelia her 20 bucks to show up or put a stand in or Photoshop a cardboard cutout of Bonnie Bedelia standing at the airport (laughs) waiting on them. And they can just, you know, it'll be a sign for, Hey, look, you can get divorced, but you're still there for your children. But obviously, because her son had this nightmarish thing where he almost blew up in Russia. <laughs> Maybe she was just worried about radiation poisoning. <laughs> Holly's the smart one. She doesn't want to be around in case he come back from Chernobyl. 
But how they could not have had there at the end, because at the end of the fifth movie, you've got the uh, John McClane and his two kids walking off into the sunset and this awkward, long, drawn out, slow motion sequence of them walking and smiling. And then they're in the they're silhouetted into the sunset and how they could not have just had somebody there with big hair and shoulder pads <laughs> to look like Holly just standing there with her daughter. Because, I mean, for crying out loud, it's her son. You'd think she'd care at all. But apparently she doesn't. Well, not in the version we got. <laughs> exactly. So let's go ahead and roll through what we've got as we try to do our own version of a 2013 fifth Die Hard movie. Well, let's look at the evolution of the sidekick character in these movies. And uh, the original, I'd almost argue that you've got, in a sense, two. Definitely our Sergeant Al Pal of the L.A. Police, who's outside um, and is the only kind of resource that John has early on in the movie and kind of rides through all the events with him, and they finally meet in person at the end. Um, but I would also include Holly, in a sense, in this. Yeah, sort of. But it, it was comp- it was clearly undefined as as the need for that. It wasn't until you start getting into the second movie where a- apparently the producers of Die Hard feel like it's necessary to give John McClane some form of an African American partner. <laughs> hey, it's Al. Now it's some random tech radio engineer con- guy radio tower yeah control tower guy who knows everything who looks like ozzy davis's son <laughs> <laughs> and, and then you get the fifth movie and it's samuel L. jackson okay and in the fourth movie we have justin long who is just a random hacker who's along for the ride he doesn't really even do much and, and then the fifth movie we've got his son that's there's your sidekicks I think with those middle two, what they were doing was the, hey, it's the original odd couple pairing. So with number three, you had John McClane paired up with Zeus, a character from Harlem who's African-American, a civilian who gets thrown into these crazy situations. And in number three, you've got this younger, you know, computer savvy hacker character in the Justin Long character. And... Yeah, it was this odd couple pairing, and they tried to bring it back to, I guess, more of the family dynamic with number five. I didn't actually mind the Jack McClane character a whole lot. I think there was uh, some good potential with that setup of him working for the CIA, but the way it was executed, just it did not hold up. No, and that's like the whole movie itself. There was a complete lack of execution there was a lack of another two or three takes at a draft of a screenplay is where they, they I think they got a first draft and said, okay, that looks good to me. <laughs> Blow stuff up. So <laughs> they just went with it. Whereas if it would have been a couple more passes, they might've actually had something there and it would not have been thrown out as a February release, which is a death knell for an action movie. Mm, true enough. Considering this used to be the series that was anchoring a midsummer release, and now it's thrown out on Valentine's Day. So, God help us. <laughs> uh, so, those were our sidekicks. Um, again, I think if we wanted to, we could keep the Jack McClane character as a sidekick in our reboot, or however we're reworking uh, the last entry here in the Die Hard f- series, but uh, we can come back to that. Uh, Our villains. Let's go through our villains gallery here. Oh, the villains gallery. Well, it starts with the ever-classic Severus Snape. (laughs) Severus Metatron Clay Snape. And continuing on that, continuing on that pattern, then we go into the devil or the, uh, the Grim Reaper from Bill and Ted's. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, we go into reversal of fortune because I can't think of anything else Jeremy Irons was in. Uh, <laughs> and then we have hey come on he was scar in the lion king okay we have scar from the lion king and then in the fourth movie we have the bad guy from scream 2 and then in the fifth movie we have nameless russian gray beard and his his ilk that don't make any impression whatsoever yeah there's a daughter character in there but what 
<laughs> just, just, yeah, no, no logic there. So I'm not even going to go into it. There really isn't. No. Don't forget, he's on vacation, so it doesn't. He, he was really on vacation. Matter. That's true. So mass casualties, the civilian populations, blatantly breaking all kinds of laws in the city. Completely ignoring uh, the science around radioactivity and, <laughs> and the problems that stem thereof. All of these things are okay because he's on vacation. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and then, again, we've already basically talked about turning him into a cartoon hero. At least for me, there's a scene in the third film, towards the latter half of the third film, where he gets shot out of a underground tunnel that's filling up with water and literally flies like 20 feet into the air and lands on the ground and is magically okay. And that's later followed up by jumping off of a bridge onto a moving barge down in the river uh, that should have killed both him and the Zeus character, but they're okay. And again, you're into the movie, you kind of roll with it, you forgive it for those things. But yeah, it, it starts to become, as you go forward in four and five, especially in number five, just kind of ridiculous. And you no longer have any, you no longer have any real stake in what happens to the character because he's basically indestructible. Yeah, and they were doing the wrong kind of escalation. I think if we were going to do a part five, the escalation has to be more along the lines of looking at part one and saying, what is the most memorable worst thing that happened to John McClane in Die Hard, the original movie? And most people will say he was bare feet and he had to walk over broken glass. The man walked over broken glass and that is the most painful thing people can think of and it wrecks him for the rest of the movie. Yet in part five, he's jumping through plate glass windows into radioactivity and crashing four times in a span of ten minutes cars and rolling over and getting out and getting into another car. And in the fourth movie, he's having a fight with a f-15 and sliding <laughs> down a freaking concrete highway and it doesn't mean anything so the first thing you have to look at is okay what can we do in the fifth movie if we're going to do this nothing but set pieces even even to that level what can we do that matches the simplicity of he's got bare feet we shoot the glass he has to walk over the glass this is his only way out damn, that's got to be painful. That gets the audience in more than sliding down a concrete highway after an F-15 shot him with a rocket. So what can we do that could match that? And I think what I was thinking of the night we originally recorded this is, okay, you got the family involved. If we're going off the premise that part four has already happened, you've already got the actress there for his daughter. You bring in the son. You somehow get Holly incorporated one way or another with Bonnie Bedelia or recast, but somehow just make it only about the family and in an isolated location again. Stop with the, we got to go to the moon now. They're, they're on us. John McClane's on a space station. Woo! <laughs> no, it, let's go to an isolated location. It can be personal revenge you can have the jack mclean character is secretly a cia agent his dad doesn't know about it thinks he's a fuck up or something but maybe his son's just been undercover for a long time and that cover gets blown or lucy mclean the daughter is visiting her brother and they get trapped by terrorists or something like that and john has to come in as a special consultant and jack mclean has to kind of be the new john and John can be the new Al outside on a CB, having to walk him through it. It could be anything like that. Well, and essentially what we're doing here is we're going back, in a sense, to the original source material, this novel uh, that we mentioned that the first movie was based off of. Uh, the character in that is, again, very similar to the original. He's in this tower. Um, instead of his wife, it's his daughter who is working for this big corporate conglomerate and uh, at least in the book doing stuff she shouldn't probably be doing, but he ends up having to rescue his daughter from the terrorists, not his wife. 
Well, so I think I think go to the source material that we have, which is John McClane, because that's the original novel with the whole Frank Sinatra movie from the 60s where he's an old sure. man now. So we go off of here's Bruce Willis. He's this old now. He has grown up kids because we saw him in 1988. We've taken that for granted because we've seen the daughter and she's shown herself to be an adept at taking care of herself in the previous movie. And now she's got a relationship with her dad. But just anything personal is what's going to make this better than a faux personal. Well, my son's in trouble in Russia, so I got to go get him. But as soon as I get there, all I'm going to do is tell people I'm on vacation <laughs> and <laughs> blow shit up and blow shit up and blow shit up <laughs> and get into shenanigans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like father, like son shenanigans. Doesn't make any uh. sense. No, it it really did not make any sense and was painful to sit through. Yeah, so grounding it with the family is, I think, essential if we're going to do any kind of a uh, final entry into the Die Hard franchise. And I personally, I think we should approach this as if this is going to be John McClane walking off into the sunset. We we want to try to end uh, this franchise and reach an end point with this character that at least is satisfying, not uh, the way that number five wrapped up for us as it was produced and thrown out there. Or if we're in a practical world, the practical world says these producers want this to be a spinoff to now where the actor Jai Courtney can go off and be the star and Bruce Willis may cameo down the road and they want their own version of James Bond. It's the McLean family. That that seems to be the idea that they were coming up with. So we could even make that happen. Yeah, we could. You have this isolated location, and Jack McLean is the one who has to save the day. Make him a different type of character, though. He's not a smart ass, or he he's not Bruce Willis light. He can be a completely different type of character, and then have him need his dad's help but not in a major way to where his dad has to run around and do all the same old shit anymore. He can do maybe one or two of those, but show actual age, show progression, <laughs> show John McClane jumping off of a roof and dislocating his shoulder and, and popping his hip out of socket. So he's yeah. in a wheelchair at the end. Yeah, this is a man who should have been in traction at the end of it. <laughs> at least nine times in the course of 25 years, John McClane should be dead. <laughs> but all right maybe- i've got a i've got a question for you we we keep talking about an, an isolated setting and everything did anything about taking this john mcclain character overseas work for you or are we staying stateside how how let's try to find the scale of this thing okay well that would lead me into a good little pitch here so what if Jack McLean has not spoken to his dad in years. And because of the new relationship that John has with his daughter, Lucy, from the previous movie, Jack can be undercover with the CIA and he can be overseas somewhere. A basic, same basic premise, kind of like what we did with the Star Wars prequel. We can even take the existing premise, just make it better. So you have Jack McLean, undercover, CIA, He's in Europe somewhere. He doesn't want to talk to his father. So when he's asking for help, he goes to his, her, Lucy finds out that he's in trouble. So she tries to take it upon herself to go and try and help her brother. But they both get captured or trapped or something. And that's when against young Jack McLean's wishes, his sister ends up calling their father and John has to then go across the ocean and try and help out any way he can. So that could be an in. Okay. Are we sending him by himself? Is any of the family coming with him? Well, I would think that it would work best because the communication would be that Jack is not going to call his father. But Lucy, <laughs> with this new relationship is going to call him so maybe she takes it upon herself to go and and try and rescue him or help him out or or whatever she knows what he does for a living and nobody else does they they have a close bond and she's just trying to go and 
and get him out of a sticky situation. Or maybe she doesn't know what he does for a living. She just thinks he's a complete loser, but it's an undercover act. So she's just trying to go at her mom's behest. And when she gets caught, she calls her dad and he finds out. And so he has, and maybe he's retired now. Maybe John McClane's retired or he just works as a private investigator because he got kicked off the force. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm picturing John McClane retired. Yeah, going to go outside, going to mow the lawn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, get me and my white tank top mowing my lawn. Hey, I'm going to do it barefoot. <laughs> so hey, you he, got some comedic potential there. <laughs> yeah, he's sitting on his – well, there you go. The first time we see Bruce Willis, he's sitting on his front porch in a white tank top and doing fists with his toes. <laughs> callback to the first movie and maybe maybe you know there's some little minor incident some little minor local incident near his house or something like that that he kind of um gets involved in and we just kind of established that yes he is in fact retired yeah he's absolutely 100 percent retired but he hates it and then suddenly he gets a phone call from his daughter lucy and she's hiding from bad guys or she's just about to get caught. I mean, we go back to the Liam Neeson movie taken. I mean, she's maybe getting ready to be kidnapped and she calls her father, but instead of calling Liam Neeson, you call John McClane. Another direction we might consider taking this as well. We could, Jack is kind of a bait used by the bad guys. They know he's CIA. He's close to you know, foiling whatever operation that they're getting ready to pull off. They know that he's too well protected. They're not going to be able to get to him. Uh, something that we never really get, I don't think, and we, we talked about this in the previous recording, that we never really get about John McClane is the fact that this guy, after saving Nakatomi, after saving the D.C. airport, after stopping half of New York from blowing up with bombs in number three, and if we keep the fourth film, saving uh, the country from cyber terrorists, this guy would be a known entity. <laughs> People would know who this man is. So if you've got you know some bad guys who know that Jack McClane's you know, father could get involved and they know this guy's reputation. That's going to be bad. Well, why not make it seem as if Jack is in danger or doing something wrong or awful or something like that? John does go over somewhere else across the seas uh, to try to help Jack or thinks he's trying to help Jack. And while that's going on, the daughter or uh, the mother get taken, get kidnapped. Okay, but what's the motivation of the villains in that case? Well, I'd have to know what it is that they're trying to do. If we if we stick with the traditional setup as you mentioned it, well, they're going to be after money. But well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe it just could be some sting operation that uh, that Jack is uncovering, and maybe he's you know maybe he's on the tip of the iceberg of something much bigger and doesn't even know it yet. Yeah, he could be undercover as a CIA agent against terrorism. But he's starting to uncover that the terrorist cell he's near is not a traditional wage jihad terrorist cell down to the west. But he starts uncovering that, no, these guys are actually only in this stuff for the money. And it could lead to even bigger dangers than just traditional terrorism for the sake of terrorism. And he starts uncovering that, but then he gets caught. Um and he gets caught while his sister is visiting. I mean, it could be a happenstance kind of a thing where she's there visiting him and then she ends up having to call John in to help save the day or um, because Jack is so undercover, she can't call the government to come help him. It's kind of a Mission Impossible there, thing. They're disavowing him or something. There's only one man who can save her brother. Yeah. Yeah, there's, yeah. Your, there's your trailer right there. And then, and then you cut to John McClane on the rocking chair on the porch doing <laughs> with his toes and a white beater. <laughs> with a gut. John McClane with a gut. He's your typical New York cop. Just he was 25 years ago. Years ago. <laughs> now he's old. 
But then he has to go across the pond and has to get mixed into crazy shenanigans. And I, I, I like the idea, though, that if both of his kids are captured, but Jack is the one who takes over the physical role, and, and John becomes more of the Sergeant Al pal, where he can be on the radio or on the cell phone or... Yeah, we could still have him do some, you know, minor heroic things, but yeah, we don't need the guy jumping off of this leg of a helicopter through plate glass. That doesn't do anything for the character, the story, and ultimately is more frustrating than anything. But you definitely have some sort of physical confrontation with John at the end. Yes. Where you do something like the glass on the floor, bare feet, something like that that he has to go through. It's his only way out or whatever it is. And he has to do it for his kids. And this is one thing that we both mentioned in the original time we recorded this is there is never any true description, only vague references to both in part four and part five. Why did Lucy McLean and why did Jack McLean hate their father so incredibly much (laughs) it was just kind of a given of well he seems kind of like a snarky asshole so that must mean that his kids hate him a lot well and yeah the even in the third movie i think they were like several times dropping the line uh maybe even before it the third movie about uh nobody can frustrate somebody like that other than john yeah that's the first one oh that's the first one okay Yeah. yeah Only John can make someone that. Crazy. There it is, yeah. But at least give us something. You know, we can do something at the beginning that says, "Here's a specific reason why you are not a good dad," uh, or "I didn't think you were a good dad," because uh, they they have this goofy scene in part five where he's talking to this <laughs> Russian guy, and they, oh, kids, they just don't understand. Man, yeah, I went to work and. I guess they don't understand that. I guess I had to go to work, but no, the kid, one of the kids has to mention this and it could even be something as stupidly base level as, you know, dad, I pitched high school baseball for a year as in my senior year and you didn't show up to a single game. Well, I was out on patrol. Yeah. (laughs) And just mention something like that, but there's never anything mentioned by either Lucy or John or Jack McClain about here's a specific reason. Just, Oh man, you're John McClain. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go on. We've got the Scott evil relationship. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I hate you so much, but <laughs> so just give us something, anything that says why. Why do you hate him so much? What makes him such a bad dad in your eyes? So that, and make it something that can actually be seen from the kid's point of view and not a, well, you're a bad dad because you didn't show up to my dance recital. And John's comeback is, I was a cop. I was on duty for 48 hours straight. I've saved the world. No, give it something actual reality because in part one and part three there were actual moments where john mclean a mention of an action done by john was enough to say yeah he is kind of a dick because (laughs) you know the third movie he tells zeus well he he hung up after a fight with holly and he hasn't talked to her since and how long was that john Uh, about a year ago So he was such an idiot, he didn't pick up the phone and call her about a year, and he's a drunk. And in the first movie, you know, she's out in California, and she's doing the best she can, and she's got a big job, and he doesn't really support her. So he bitched and complained until he finally decided to come back out to try and make amends. So those couple of things show that John is not really the greatest guy of all time. He has his flaws. So show us a flaw in his parenting skills so that at the end, when he's fighting to save his children, there can be a sense of redemption for his character that we heard about earlier of being a good dad. And maybe he was a bad dad. Maybe he didn't 
show up to anything. Maybe he cursed out their mother in front of them and and didn't do anything to support them until much later in life. And it, it's Maybe. fairly simple. Maybe there was somebody who we don't know about so far who he wasn't able to save, and that has changed his dynamic with his family or how he connects with them or fails to connect with them. I mean, there can be other aspects to this guy that we just haven't seen yet. Yeah, I mean, he's been around forever, and yet we've seen four total days of his life. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. (laughs) So... But we did just some sort of scene that mentions what exactly is it that you did so wrong as a dad and how can we make it so that your actions at the end of our fifth movie will redeem you in their eyes, even if not in just our eyes. Well, and I'm trying to remember, there is some short scene in the fifth movie when Jack is wounded after they've dropped through like... 60 stories worth of trash barrels that are uh, chained together off the roof of a building to escape a helicopter shooting at them. Um, Where he's berating his kid who's got like shrapnel in his side for being a wuss. uh, Where I think they were trying to do that. But again, kind of like you were saying, maybe if they'd kept going with the drafting, that scene could have turned into what we're talking about that we wanted. But it just wasn't really there in the fifth movie as we got it. Yeah, it was the favorite phrase here. It was shoehorned in. Mm -hmm. These scenes felt like there was a first draft and somebody said along the lines of what we're talking about, hey, you know, that's his father. Maybe there should be some mention in there. So they did one more pass and said, "Uh, let's have him say something bad to his son and then... We'll have them say, oh, like father, like son at the end. And then, okay, can we get back to the explosions? Kablamo! (laughs) So what we have to get to is we have to get to an ending. And the ending has to be something that will redeem John from however he was a bad dad or portrayed as a bad dad early on. While also doing the producer's bidding of making Jack McClain the future of this franchise. And giving him some sort of resolution because what John has had for four movies here is he's seen to constantly be trying to do his job while also having the guilt of not being a family man like he feels like he should be. So there's a happy medium that has to exist here where maybe he ends up getting a consulting job with the CIA in in counterterrorism. He seems to be an expert in it. (laughs) Indeed. But you take down the bad guys and you give them a happy ending. And it's pretty simple. The happy ending is John's back on his porch. He's retired or now or, or he's, you know, going for his first day of work as a consultant with the CIA or whatever it is that Jack got him into. And it turns out that his family's there to see him. Uh, support him or, or something like that. His family shows up to support him and gives a good, big old Bruce Willis smirk that he's actually found peace. Or one of his kids actually has their first offspring and they name the kid John. Which is already John McClane Jr. So it's John the Third. Yeah. <laughs> We'd like you to meet. John McClain the third and the little baby smirks and has a white tank <laughs> <top> on. <laughs> He's got Bruce Willis's hairline. <laughs> we just digitally put on the Bruce Willis. It turns into the kid from Look Who's Talking. All oh, of a sudden God. we hear the kid from Look Who's Talking and there's Bruce Willis doing the voice. <laughs> and that's how the franchise is mixed. <laughs> All right, well, leaving that last horrible idea out of it. <laughs> Come on, Travolta could be there, Kirstie Alley could oh, be there. Oh, God. <laughs> no. Okay. So <laughs> we don't have a specific story screenlined out here or screenplayed out here, and we don't have a very good pitch. But the ideas of pitching the family, more importance in the family, less to do with the villain side story. I mean, even if we had the bare bones structure of what we got for part five, 
put in more family dynamics and eliminate more of the idiocy of the Russian plan or whatever it was. Uh, and have have a smart villain for him to go up against. Uh, yeah, or, uh, they they tried to shoo in the put in the 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 villain's daughter who turned out to not do uh, anything. Uh no, that was pointless. Yeah, I mean the the logic behind her was non-existent. And not even in a jokey way, in an absolutely honest, there was no logic to her character. She was at the beginning in a parking garage on a motorcycle. Then she was a damsel in distress who then her father had to go save. But then she was in on it with her father. But then she wasn't. And then she somehow found out her father died at the end, even though she's up in a helicopter with no way of knowing that her father has died. So then she gets this eyeball like, I'm going to do a suicide revenge all of a sudden and fly this helicopter into this building for some For no some reason. reason. Yeah. There's no reason at all for her character. It doesn't make any sense at all. But yeah, give the villain something to do, but don't make them the, the centralized focus. Oh, but I mean, you know, good, good action heroes, good heroes have a worthy villain to go up against. And it's been a while since we've given John McClane a worthy adversary here. So that's that's a must in whatever redux version of this we would do. An absolutely true terrorist is something that John's going has never really gone up against. Always somebody for money. And considering that our idea of Jack being in the CIA and infiltrating a terrorist cell john can actually be going up against true honest to god terrorists who ultimately want money in the end why wouldn't they (laughs) but he has to fight plain and simple terrorists and it almost comes like an indiana jones movie he's out in the dusty middle east somewhere fighting it really just comes down to more family a more dynamic villain make it centralized around the kids with John almost as a support and not as the main character anymore and do whatever you can to either pay Bonnie Bedelia or get Holly, a Holly lookalike in there as just a cameo to bring it full circle and to make sure that whatever happens to John is on a human scale. He's not driving a tank. He's driving a, Honda and he breaks a toe, not falls down a slate of concrete and gets up running. Yeah, give give us the character that we originally fell in love with in this series again. Cause we haven't seen him for a while. <laughs> and now it's time to pitch our idea for how to fix this film. Bruce Willis. <laughs> Die hungry. How could the same thing happen to the same guy so many times? I could talk about industrialization and men's fashions all day, but I'm afraid work must intrude, and my associate Theo has some questions for you. Sort of fill in the blanks questions, actually. We open on a plane. Lucy Gennaro is gripping the armrest, just like her father did in the first movie. Seated with her is her loving stepfather. Upon arriving, we learn they are just outside of Chechnya, as Lucy calls her mother, Holly, who is a very wealthy executive who paid a lot of money for them to get this far. They meet a contact who takes them into a small, dusty town into a compound where her brother, Jack McLean, is working as a deep, undercover CIA operative who has infiltrated a terrorist group. Jack has to make a choice when his sister and stepfather arrive to keep his cover, but he blows that cover when Lucy is put into danger, and all three are then taken hostage by the terrorist group. Back in New York, semi-retired John McClane is called by his ex-wife, Holly. In an expository and dramatic call, Holly explains that their kids are being held hostage by terrorists, and she cannot get the help of the government in paying the ransom. She is begrudgingly asking him for his help as he's the only one to get them back. John makes a call to FBI Director Bowman, whom we met in Part 4, and the director secretly agrees to help 
but this is not sanctioned. John gets to see satellite surveillance of the town, and Bowman gives him a phone to be used only for rescue once he has secured himself and his children and is a safe distance away because the rescue is extremely dangerous. John is dropped in the town with a bag of ransom money and his handgun. The town immediately becomes a Black Hawk Down situation in which this little town is actually all owned by the terrorist group. John is cut off from any assistance, and he is now on his own, like the first movie. We see Jack and Lucy being held and tortured by the terrorist group as the leader sees John's actions getting nearer and nearer to their compound. John manages to rescue Lucy in a firefight, but their stepfather is killed and Bowman's phone is damaged. Lucy teams up with her father as they set off to rescue Jack. We learn in dialogue that John did not recommend Jack for the police force, and that is why his son hates him so much and hasn't spoken to him in years. The two rescue Jack from the terrorists as John is badly injured and his children have to help him out of the compound. Realizing that their way out is gone with the loss of the phone, John suddenly has an idea. Set the whole place to explode so they'll see on satellite, signaling the need for rescue. The three arrive home at a small airport to the site of Holly waiting for them outside of a limousine. She and John share a knowing nod, and we go off into the sunset to Christmas music, realizing there's a Christmas tree up at the airport as credits roll. Maybe I should read it like Morgan Freeman. Maybe you should. <laughs> he is the narrator of Die Hard 5. John McClane was a New York City policeman who crawled through a river of shit in Dulles Airport, came out with the help of Samuel L. Jackson, saved the East Coast from cyber terrorism, and jumped into the icy waters of Chernobyl, only to come out smelling like nuclear waste. <laughs> Don't forget to like us on Facebook. Episodes can be downloaded on iTunes or at EnceladusLiterary.com. Hans, Bobby, I'm your white knight. Opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect those of Enceladus Literary. So you take this under advisement, jerkweed. Okay, but... Ah!